Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. I remember it very, very clearly because it was associated with some major decisions I made about changing the direction of my career. I was sitting in my office at the NIH Clinical Center, the research hospital where I had my laboratories, and um, what came on my desk in June of 1981 was the June 5th uh, edition of Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, the weekly a summary that comes from the CDC. And it was a report of five otherwise healthy, interestingly and curiously, gay men who presented in Los Angeles with an unusual pneumonia called pneumocystis pneumonia, which is seen only in individuals who have a compromised body defenses or immune system. I had seen several patients with pneumocystis because as an infectious diseases clinician, I was not infrequently called to consult on patients from the Cancer Institute who were receiving chemotherapy and would occasionally get this bizarre type of pneumonia. I didn't make anything of the initial report because it just was curious, a little disturbing, wasn't quite sure what was going on. And then exactly one month later, on the 4th of July of 1981, another edition of MMWR landed on my desk as it does every week and I read it. Uh, and now this was an additional 26 men, again, curiously, all gay men, all previously healthy, who presented now not only with pneumocystis pneumonia, but also with a strange cancer called Kaposi sarcoma and other infections. And it was at that point that I fully realized and knew, and I actually remember getting goose pimples about it because saying, oh my goodness, this is a new disease. Back in the early episodes of Series 1, when we were looking at COVID, Travis, HIV got mentioned in the list of looking at different pandemics and mm -hmm. probably timely to have a look at HIV in Australia because the limelight is elsewhere and there are most likely things we need to be aware of. There are. Uh, HIV is one of those ones. You, you think about it. Uh, and it's it's interesting from a hindsight perspective to think, oh, that, that happened. Can I ask you what your memories of HIV were? I remember in the mid-80s, uh, I think it was mid-80s, 86 sounds like, but it could have been a bit later, uh, the Grim Reaper ads yeah. on TV <laughs> and being quite disturbed by it. And not long after that, I was doing talkback radio on 5DN in Adelaide, and I remember having callers ring up in the wee small hours uh, going on about how it's God's punishment. Mm, right, so yeah, that yeah. was the sort of mix of those early ideas. Yeah, and that's my memory too, as that, uh, you know, that is such a, a polarising ad. I wonder if it would ever be released again, because they even talked about was it as effective as what they think. If you haven't seen it, search for HIV ad Australia, you know, 1980s. It just comes up on YouTube mm. and like it's you don't forget it once you've seen it. Mm. But uh, look, it was it's a it's an amazing time uh, because 
Well, HIV, what, what we know about it is most people believe it started in 1981. So, and, and what happened at this point in time was the US started getting these mystery illnesses of these young, young, usually healthy men that were starting to uh, getting these very strange illnesses, these very unusual illnesses that just don't affect young, healthy people. Uh, they tended to be male and they tend to be homosexual. Uh, and so this was, you know, first reported, CDC uh, published a, a case of, or an article of five young, previously healthy young men mm. that were infected with pneumocystis pneumonia. Now, this is a fungus, but it doesn't affect healthy people. The only people that affected were immunosuppressed people. Mm. And so it was really strange that healthy individuals were coming down with this. And then in New York and California, they started to get this unusual tumour. It was a very aggressive tumour. It's called Carposi sarcoma. Uh, now, it's got the sarcoma term, but we've, we now know it's not really a sarcoma. It's, it's actually a multicentric vascular hyperplasia, but it's these lesions that are that are vascular and they can bleed. Uh, if you've seen the film uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, those lesions on uh, around... Uh, his face and on his body, uh, you know, distinctive things. Healthy people were getting them, uh, healthy young men mainly. Uh, and this was just baffling everyone. And so we start getting these cases in 1981. And then it's not until 1983, so two years later, we get HIV isolated as the causative agent. Now, if you think about that, that's two years to identify what caused it. And again, what you're hearing, what you remember, all of that, you know, there's there's amazing clips of politicians railing against, you know, uh, well, all sorts of manner of what the cause was. And, you know, again, yes, uh, you know, at the time they, they said it was gay cancer. Uh, and so it, was, it wasn't until 1983 that we realised what the virus was. It wasn't until 1985 that we were able to test for it. So that's two years to find out what it was and two years to test for it. So it's an amazing when you think about that in these current times, it took us two months to identify a, a new virus. Mm. And so then people are going, well, you know, it spread across the world, as everyone knows. And so then they started going, well, where did this come from? It became the search for patient zero. And so who was the first person infected? Now, there was a book in 1988 uh, that's called And the Band Played On. And they announced it was an airline steward, a Canadian French person by the name of Gaetan Dugas. And they announced him as patient zero. Now, he certainly wasn't. But imagine a book coming out. This, pa this patient had died in, in 1984, so the book came out in 1988. And he was a, a, a gentleman that went from city to city, as his job would lay, mm. and slept and had sex with thousands of men. And he knew when he was dying of AIDS, and he went out and intentionally infected other men. So he was a super spreader who was also turned malicious and got really angry, and they named him. Now, he wasn't patient zero, and the reason they know that is because when you get HIV, it mutates at a predictable rate. Mm -hmm. And so what they found is that the mutation that had entered the US had entered it decades before, and it was actually in 1966 that they realized it had entered the US. 
And so they can always trace it back to uh, Kinshasa, which is in Africa. And they have, in 1959, a man in hospital from there, and in 1960, a histology specimen, where they were able to find that the virus was, was in that region at that time. And so what they then did is traced it all the way back, and what they're looking for, patient zero, tended to be in the early 1900s. Oh, really? So what they talk about is a spillover event. So where you have a, uh, an event where the virus goes from one species to the next. I always prefer to say cross the species barrier because then you know what's going. Spillover sounds like it, it falls out. Mm. Whereas a crossing the species barrier means that it went from one species to the next. Now, what we know is that HIV-1, which is the main, main one that's going around, is closely related to a chimpanzee simian immunodeficiency virus. And that has came out from southeastern Cameroon in Africa. So it's amazing detective work that something happened in that time. So what's happened from there, from Africa, they, they believe it went from Haiti and the Caribbean, then into the US at that time. So when these people were getting sick in the 80s, Again, what we know from HIV and AIDS, uh, as it was termed back then, is they had been sick for actually quite a long time, but it were just presenting mm. then. And so that's why it sort of seemed to flare up, because all these people would have had this infection that we'll discuss the, the course later. And so that then begs the question, how did it cross the species barrier? And there's a few theories, but the most prevalent one is the cut hunter theory, meaning that someone in Africa was hunting chimpanzees, as they do, and they killed a chimpanzee, and then as they were butchering it, they either had a cut on themselves and they, or they cut themselves. <laughs> and then the blood mixed. This is a blood-borne infection, HIV, and the virus was able to find itself in an environment that it could survive in and it could thrive in. And from there it was able to spread. It's reminiscent of the wet market theory that people are talking about in relation to COVID as well and, yeah. and crossing the barrier. So it's, it is it is quite amazing because you said, that, well, how is this not happening all the time? Because we're mixing with animals all mm. the time. Mm. And there's just sometimes a sentinel event that just changes the course. I know that some of the conservative callers who rang me up did think it was due to monkeying around in Africa, and they just ran with that theory for ages, which put, I think, uh, the public goodwill behind because, well, they're just getting their just desserts was the, the dialogue of the time. And this is this goes on in the field of medicine, doesn't it? And public health is you've got those other elements uh, causing friction and turbulence as you're trying to apply evidence-based approaches to getting to the heart of a matter. And, and this, is, this is a thing. I even went online and sort of like just put out some information about HIV. Uh, and I was surprised. I even got some conspiracy theory wow. people coming back and saying, well, that shows that it was put into an African, uh, you know, hospital and they were experimenting at the time. Like, wow. what are you reading? <laughs> this is happening now. And so this is where you sit there and just go, the field of medicine, uh, pathology, is working in an area, we're trying to find facts, but you have this whole information, people with agendas coming on and saying, this is what I think. And the problem is people listen to that 
and then make their judgments or do something on that. And so that's the impact of knowledge. And we now have an ability to be able to transmit information that we've never been able to transmit. Someone who has a megaphone mm. uh, that never would have had a megaphone before. And I think we're seeing that at the moment. Uh, and so to date, what have we got You know, from that event? Now, this is probably around over about 100 years now. HIV has been a- around. We've had around 78 million HIV infections. And that ranges is between 70, 71 and 87 million because, again, some places don't have testing. And so you have to estimate. There's been around about 38 million AIDS-related deaths. Uh, and and what, we, what we know is that there's, in you know, 2019, 1.7 million acquired cases. Now, it is reducing, you know, it's down by about 23% from, you know, mm-hmm. 2010. But the interesting fact is about 80% of people in general know they're HIV positive. About 20% don't. Oh. So this is the environment we find ourselves with with HIV. You mentioned megaphones before. I'm about to take yours away temporarily. Change its batteries back in a moment. Four out of every thousand college kids is now HIV positive. A lot of parents are getting very angry. We come to thank God for the life of Phil Howard for all that he meant to all of you. San Francisco's gay community, once the capital of gay liberation, has become a community of young men who spend much of their time dealing with death and dying. Lord, have mercy. Many people compare the experience of living through the AIDS epidemic to war. In this city alone, AIDS already has killed more than 5,000 people. That is three times the number of people from San Francisco who died fighting in all the wars in this century. You feel very helpless. There's absolutely nothing you can do. Bob Ross publishes a gay newspaper called the Bay Area Reporter. Every week, he prints obituaries of at least a dozen people in the area who died of AIDS. It's a holocaust in the sense that, like, it's some group is attacking our entire community, and no one seems to give a damn. And people say it's like old age, but the difference is that my parents are in their 70s, but they don't know six people who died last month, and half of their friends aren't in the hospital. Right, you've set up the history and the background for this discussion about HIV. Let's look more closely at the virus itself. Okay, so the, the virus is what we call a retrovirus. Uh, and, and what that means is it's an RNA virus. So we, we have DNA, DNA mm-hmm. in our body. Uh, and But for this virus to affect us and to get into our DNA, it has to reverse its... Uh, well, let's say reverse transcriptase, it has to make convert it from RNA to DNA to get into our system and be able to propagate uh, the virus. And so it has, it's a little virus, it has what we call enveloped, it has a membrane around it, uh, and you've got these little spikes again uh, with, with proteins on it. Uh, and inside you have two RNA viruses in a little capsid. And so it produces 15 proteins. So what the virus has to do is it has to get into our cells. It has to then integrate itself into the DNA. It has to reverse transcriptase, taking it from RNA to DNA, and then it has to proliferate. And so what ends up happening is the cells that are affected 
are our immune cells, specifically T cells, T helper cells. And so this virus has to be able to attach itself, and so it has receptors. Uh, and what we know is that it is a bloodborne infection, so it stays in our blood. It affects our immune system, T helper cells, but it also affects macrophages. So there are also cells that help us take and fight infection. And the HIV interferes with macrophages able to take up uh, microorganisms and bacteria and, and kill them. And so it has a whole ability. Now, the, the interesting thing about that is that initially people will get an acute infection. Now, this we tend to describe it like a flu-like illness. Mm. So people will get headaches or sore throats, feel, feel uh, unwell, fevers and chills. They might get some muscle pain and aches. Now, this tends to happen two to four weeks after they've been exposed to HIV. So it's kind of nonspecific, and that's the hard thing. It feels like the flu. And so they may even get a bit of a rash, uh, what we call a macular papular rash, so sort of red, maybe even a bit bumpy, uh, and they'll get swollen lymph glands, but that will subside, and then they might feel fine. And so you've got that acute infection where the virus is, is taking hold, and then you've got this chronic infection. Now, it goes into a sort of a latent period. So when we look at viruses, you can have almost two cycles. You have a latent period and a lytic period. And the lytic is when it's lysing cells and every causing damage. Latent is it's just sitting there in the background. It's generally not causing much problems, but it's just proliferating. Mm. And they, they can get mild symptoms. You can have a cough. You can have a bit of weight loss, diarrhea, you know, high fever. But this can last for about 10, 15 years. And so you're otherwise well. And again, these are young people, sexually active, with HIV infection, you can understand if you have a few partners and you're not aware of it, then it just passes on. And then we get to stage three. Now, this is the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Mm -hmm. And this is where people, you really get low T cells in your blood. You really get this weight loss and cough, persistent fevers, chills, rashes, pneumonia. Uh, and this is where people were presenting in the 80s and 90s at that time as well, with these very unusual infections that would not affect a person with a competent immune system. And so the, the average survival for someone when they get to that stage three is about three years. And so you can see that you have a virus that is infectious, causes just a little bit of illness at the start, hangs around for about 10 years, still being infectious, still passing it on, and then you get very unwell at the end. And so when we look at HIV in Australia, we have around about 26,000 people living with HIV, and it's estimated in Australia about 10% are unaware of their diagnosis. That's about 2,600 people. And so we have an average of about 1,000 new infections per year that is reducing. It's about nine, 900 to 800 as we progress. But since uh, 1982, we've had about 36,000 diagnoses of HIV in Australia. And so where's the transmission? Transmission is mainly, 68% of transmission is men who have sex with men. Right. And so mainly in the, the gay community, uh, 
There's also a little bit of men who have sex with men as well as drug use. About 5% uh, is in that area. Uh, But 20% is heterosexual transmission. So, again, uh, there are people at higher risk, mainly people who have uh, partners who have men who have sex with men uh, for, for women. Uh, and then we're, we're down to about 3% for IV drug users and then 4% unknown transmission. So we're not sure how they got it. The encouraging thing about this, if there is such a thing, mm-hmm. is about 86% of these people are receiving treatment and 93% of these people are achieving viral suppression, which we'll discuss the significance of uh, in a little bit later. But Effectively, what it means is that HIV has gone from being pre-1996 a terminal illness that most people died from to now a chronic disease that people are able to live with. And again, as you talked about, the first symptoms you get that are a little bit non-specific. again, my empathy for our GPs is at as, as high as it can. They have to do this detective work. Yeah. Day in, day out. Yeah. You know. And so the, the, the great thing for, for GPs uh, is to actually just have it in the back of the mind, you know, thinking about it as a, a potential screening test. You know, is this person at risk? So, yeah. Thirty years ago, the Food and Drug Administration approved AZT for the treatment of AIDS. At the time, it was a miracle drug that gave patients up to a year of life. Acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, known as AIDS, is the last stage of the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. There is no cure for HIV, but the disease can be controlled with treatment. Treatments for HIV and AIDS have progressed since the approval of AZT. Patients can choose from dozens of medications to fight the disease. Now, antiretroviral drugs make it possible for people diagnosed with HIV to live longer lives. But the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports more than 6,700 in the U.S. died from HIV or AIDS in 2014. And the World Health Organization estimates about 1.1 million people died from AIDS in 2015. Right in the final part of this episode, Travis, let's deal with a number of questions that may well be on people's minds. And let's start with some of the common misconceptions about HIV AIDS. Where would you start with something like that? I would think because uh, HIV has been around now for so long, I think one of the main misconceptions is that it's not a problem anymore. Uh, we've gotten used to, a, used to it being around or affecting other people or not affecting you know, this community or not. Uh, and so the, the, you know, this misconception that it's not a problem, no, it is a problem. As I say, you know, eight or 900 people get a diagnosis each year in Australia. Uh, again, there's more in other countries like Africa. Uh, and it is a, it's a significant problem. Now, we can manage it much better. But, you know, people think they don't... There's a free ticket. You, know, you can manage it, so... Yeah, so it's not a problem. And the problem is what we found was there was a, there was an increase, uh, mainly, you know, again, there was a safe sex, you know, uh, advertisement yep. and a really effective campaigns that then once it started to be managed so well, that actually dropped off and the infections went up for a bit. Uh, so people go, oh, I've got it. It's fine. I don't worry about it. But yes, it's able to be manageable. But again, there is a risk. People can contract it. People will often know they're in the higher risk categories. Uh, and the, the problem with, with not testing for it is 
if it presents late, the prognosis is a bit worse. We don't manage it as well, particularly if it presents really late, because that's difficult uh, to, to manage. So I've got a question with that notice. I need your uh, opinion on this. There was a movement I was quite aware in conversations um, going back in the late 90s in particular, when I was a young man in the dating field, there was the, the the expectation that if you're going to settle down into a relationship with someone, either partner would want the other one to have an, AIDS, an HIV test mm-hmm. um, before they did anything untoward or quite toward. Uh, what do you think? Is, is that prudent? Look, it's, it's an important discussion to have because, again, whilst we're discussing HIV there's a whole bunch of other diseases that need discussion as well. You know, uh, again, we're talking about HIV, but remember, sexually transmitted disease, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, uh, you have herpes, there are, you know, a whole bunch of other things that need discussion. So it's important to actually, you know, when a new partner, and we know one of the risk factors is having a new partner. And sometimes... uh, they'll have contracted something that needs a discussion. So even providing that opportunity for someone to, to discuss it will, will probably be useful. Talking of discussions, though, um, I've heard a bit about ART or antiretroviral treatment. Um, how does how does that work? So that's the treatment for it. So what, what we do uh, have is for HIV, effectively what we're wanting to do is reduce the viral load to pretty much undetectable. What that means is... In a a testing scenario, we know you have HIV, but we can't see any of the virus in your blood. And so you can get thousands and thousands of copies in a normal HIV infection. Uh, The aim of the treatment is to bring that all the way down and so that we can't detect it. And so the treatments nowadays, they used to be really difficult because you used to have these ones with horrible side effects and people had to work out, do I go with the infection or do I have the side effects? Because they were that difficult to, to cope with. So the treatments now have become more effective. They're more convenient so uh, and better tolerated. And so the, the whole thing about that is once you have a diagnosis of HIV, it's actually managing it well because once we get an undetectable level of HIV, your risk of passing that on is as low as it can be without me saying nil. But that's what some of the studies say. There's almost no ability to transmit uh, HIV when you have an undetectable level of virus. So there are studies out there that show people uh, HIV positive partners with HIV negative partners for six months without protected sex, which again, this Mm. is the study that it was, did not pass it on if they were able to get to and maintain an undetectable HIV level. So that's an encouraging result. But again, you sit there and just go, you would hope it doesn't (laughs) encourage the other behavior. I'm HIV positive, I'm undetectable, therefore I don't need to have, you know, safe sex. But it's encouraging for people who are seeking treatment. Well, it's actually useful because even having safe sex, there's still always that risk. So if you were still applying safe sex practices in that scenario, then it means it really does get as close to nil as yeah. we possibly could imagine, exactly. doesn't well, it? And, and the important point there is if you're in an environment that uh, – if you're in an environment or you have a risky exposure, mm-hmm. uh, there is something called prophylaxis that you can take. So now it is time limited. So, you know, if you have a, a sexual encounter or IV drug use, 
uh, where a person where you think, oh, that person may have, or you're not sure, you can actually take prophylaxis. So that's the uh, prep. Uh, I was going to ask you about prep. So that's I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Yeah, so yeah. it is P R E P, but with yeah. a small R. Yeah, yeah. And and these are the things. So when uh, health individuals started getting uh, what we call needle stick injuries, so if you took blood from someone who had HIV or even possible or didn't even know their HIV status and then accidentally stabbed yourself with it, it's a needle stick injury and there's risk of transmission of bloodborne viruses. Mainly we talk about hepatitis B, C and right. HIV. So what we would have for those people is you would take the, the, the HIV medication to make sure that if it is there, it doesn't take hold. And so people who have, you know, patients or, you know, who have these risky encounters or aren't sure they can actually take it regularly if they're in the medium to high category of, you know, you might contract. Or if they've had a, an exposure, they can actually take it and reduce their risk that if they have encountered HIV. If I just circle back briefly, you mentioned the undetectable viral load before. Yep. What do you actually mean by that? So what that means is, uh, so again, when we're doing the testing, yep. uh, we can test for uh, effectively the level of viruses. Okay. And then once we get it, so for a person who's HIV negative, if we test with the virus, you, you wouldn't get to a level. So effectively, it means that the threshold mm -hmm. of the virus in the blood, we can't find any. And so a virus will normally be proliferating at you know, hundreds, thousands. Uh, but when it's undetectable, it means we know you're HIV, but we can't find it on our test. Okay. And so that's the aim uh, for, for that to, to go through. Now, about living with HIV, um, is it still possible for patients to have kids if they've got HIV or a partner who's HIV positive? They do. So we'll, ta we'll tackle the first one. If they have a partner that's HIV, again, you'll want to manage the HIV as best you can. You want it to be, uh, you know, undetectable level because, mm -hmm. again, transmission, uh, you want to reduce that risk as much as possible. Uh, absolutely. Uh, with regards to pregnancy, HIV does not pass the placenta barrier. Wow. So the, the baby is protected in the uterus. Mm -hmm. The high risk time, though, for a, a mother to pass it on to their child is birth. And so when they have, because you have mixing of blood at that point in time, uh, and the other one is breastfeeding. So it can be passed through that. So what we find, though, is that if it's the HIV is known now, pregnant women are regularly screened for HIV. So that's that's really good in this in, in our environment. Mm -hmm. uh, we can reduce that risk of passing birth from between 25 to 40% down to less than 1% of transmission risk with birth of uh, a HIV positive mother to a HIV negative baby. So yes, they can. It's just knowing about the diagnosis and then it's taking the, the correct precautions uh, to, to make sure that transmission is, is limited as much as possible. Let's finish off on that tone or topic of precautions. GPs, how often would you recommend GPs are testing or screening their patients? It's, it, look, all it is is just considering it. And again, if someone is in a risk category, so we know that's men who have sex with men, uh, we know that this is IV drug using, uh, it would be a, just a matter of 
knowing that this patient is in a risk category, even if it's a you know heterosexual uh, woman or man who have had you know a number of contacts in the past, uh, you know it's thinking about should I test, should I screen for it? Because again, sometimes you we don't know. And and look, there are diagnoses that are a bit surprising that this person is encountered. And sometimes, uh, let's be honest, not everyone describes in detail their sexual. Uh, <laughs> I would if I could remember them. <laughs> so uh, again, so you know, some people boast, or some people may be a little bit embarrassed. Uh, and, and again, it's don't one look of those- at me when you say that. <laughs> so it, it's just a matter of look, look having that discussion about whether we we test for HIV. Look, the the, the challenge is we do know that almost fifty percent of transmissions of HIV come from about twenty percent of people who don't know they have it. And so we do know that when people get diagnosed with HIV, uh, that it does change behavior. And so if we're able to, to identify those people, we know we can actually limit the transmission risk. And so it does improve their prognosis and it, and it limits the ability of the virus to spread. Dr. Travis Brown, thank you. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. But if not stopped, it could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner, or always use condoms, always. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references, and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.